if you would please stand for the reading of God's word from the book of Malachi this evening. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people whom... The Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Pray for me as I try to preach this text. Pray for yourselves as well as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this evening. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray for revival. I would long to see this building filled in the Sunday evening worship. And because people, O oh Lord, have a desire to be assembled again for worship, to hear the Word of God read, to hear instruction from the Scriptures, the proclamation of your Word. And so I would pray, O oh God, you would burden your congregation. That you would move them, O oh God, to be here for Lord's Day evening services. And that you would grant, again, revival to the hearts and minds of the people at Southwest Presbyterian Church. And we pray, O oh God, that you would be with us this evening as we assemble here. And we wait upon you, O oh God. We look to you for grace and help. And I pray, O oh God, you're helping my life as I preach uh, these few verses. And pray that you would apply it to our hearts and minds. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that all of you know that Malachi is the last book written in the Old Testament. Uh, it is Israel has been in captivity for 70 years. It was during their time of bondage that Daniel was written, that also Ezekiel was written. The time promised by Jeremiah the prophet that they would go into captivity for their own rebellion. And it was that Cyrus came on the throne and gave them permission to go back home. And it's interesting in Isaiah 44 and verse 36, I think it is, in Isaiah 45, 1, Cyrus is mentioned by name. That's long before Cyrus was ever born. And yet we should not be surprised by the prophet knowing the name of this king um, long before he was ever born, just as they knew that Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem. There were three migrations back uh, from captivity to Israel in 538 to 537. Shel, um, Shezbazar uh, led a group back, uh, 42,360. They built the temple. In 458, Ezra brought people back, and as you remember, they continued their work there. The third return was when they built the walls under Nehemiah. And we went through the book of Nehemiah some, uh, may have been a year ago, I can't remember. Um, in uh, 433, Nehemiah returns under Persian rule. He comes back and after they get the wall rebuilt, you probably remember from our study that they go back, he goes back to serve again under the king. 
The background of uh, this book has several motifs. It is that the people of Israel very soon have forgotten God's faithfulness. If you read this book, it talks about how there's pollution among the priest. There's pollution among the offerings that are being offered to God already. They are insincere in the marriage vows that they take because men are divorcing their wives as they have gotten older. And they are turning away from them to marry younger women. So it's just interesting that you seem like we learn from difficulties and trials. And yet uh, in the Old Testament, we see very quickly they turned away from the Lord again. As God gave them the grace to go back home and God gave them uh, the priest and the priest were not faithful. And so again and again, we see Israel turning away from the Lord, uh, being unfaithful to him. Uh, the author of this book is a man named Malachi. It means messenger of God. Some people think this is the title of the book and that Ezra actually wrote the book. But if it is in fitting with the other Old Testament minor prophets, then Malachi is the name of the spokesman who wrote this book. Um, and as we begin this uh, little study, uh, it is question and answer uh, throughout the book. As they begin here, asking the question, how have you really loved us? So that's on and on throughout the minor prophet. And uh, this prophet is rich, and this prophet ends on a very, very positive note as well. So, <clears throat> and this evening, we are going to look at this uh, very quickly. Introduction to the question, does God really love me? And all of you are solidly reformed Christians, and I know none of you have ever asked that question, but perhaps you have questioned God's providence, God's working, when at times seem to be inexplicable to us. Hopefully, you have never questioned God's love, or perhaps you have questioned his wisdom and some of the things that he did in his providence concerning your life. And we assume and we know as Christians that God does love us. The problem with the Christians, these Old Testament saints in Malachi's day, is they were questioning the love of God because God had not done certain things for them that they thought God should do. And the the whole argument in these verses as God appeals to the Old Testament uh, earlier on, back to the book of Genesis, to assure them of his love for them, that God loves them. They should not question God's love for them. And to do so is to insult the God who has made promises and he keeps his promises to his people. Well, this evening we'll see that because God in his electing purposes has given us life in Jesus Christ, we should be confident of God's love always. Now, that is not to say that everyone in the church is a believer. We know that there are people in the church who are not believers. We know there are people in the pulpit who are not believers. But for the one who is sincere in his faith to Christ... There should be no question whatsoever on our part ever as to whether or not God loves us. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we're dealing with, we should never question God's love for us. And so in the first place, then, God's love for his people is unconditional. As he begins here, I have loved you, says the Lord. 
it is an appeal to the covenant promise that God made when he would be a God to them and to their children after them. And so this is in response to the fact of their complaining that God does not love us. And I have loved you. It sounds a lot like Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you to myself in loving kindness. And the same thing applies to us today. Why is it that we are Christians? Why is it that we are a part of the life of the church? It is because God loved us and drew us to himself in loving kindness. You've heard that many times from this pulpit, and I know you've heard it many times from this pulpit, and you should have heard it many times from this pulpit. Uh, But we fail to grasp, I think, the depth of God's love for us. And we fail to understand that it is absolutely God's doing that he loves us. And because it's God's doing and none of our own, we can rest in confidence that he is always going to love us. So here, uh, the wording is, I have loved you in the past. Uh, I love you today. And I will love you for all eternity. This is God's words to his people in the Old Testament. And so it is that that relationship that we have with God is one that is going to carry on because of God's commitment to us. And again, this calls to mind the covenant promise where God had said to Abraham, all the nations in the world will be blessed through you. And then in Genesis 17, you know, that promise that uh, if you... Uh, uh, Remember my uh, the sign of the circumcision, and their, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the, scar, the, the stars in the sky, and so forth. And so that is a commitment on God's part. And these covenantal terms used here by the Lord as He deals with the people of God of old in Malachi's day, and again the last Old Testament book that is written. Uh, I am your God, He is saying. Uh, I love you. And I am committed to you. Now, the sorriness of the people and the way they're behaving uh, in Malachi's day, God could have said to them, I am your God. I command you to do these things, and you have no choice but to do them. We can say that to our children when they're a little bitty. I'm your parent. You do these things because I tell you to do so, and I have the authority to do that. But you notice what God does here. He doesn't simply say that. I'm your God, therefore you must obey me. But he reminds them again of his love for them. I have loved you, says the Lord. And notice their response. Why have you loved us? Uh, What have you done for us that shows your love for us? How have you blessed us in such a way that you, you, we went away to captivity for all those years? We lost children. Here we are all over again. And how have you really shown your love to us? We're not a great nation like we were when David ruled. You say you love us. We'll prove it. How have you loved us? And you see the hearts of the people here are so far from God in asking such a question. What does God do? As he did with Thomas who said, I will not believe that Christ is risen from the grave. No matter what you tell me, no matter what you say, I will not believe it until I see it for myself. And I put my fingers in his hand and I put my hand in his side. Only then will I believe 
that Christ is risen from the dead. Well, here, how have you loved us? And God goes into this detail by appealing to his covenant promise and covenant choice through Esau and Jacob. Have I not loved Jacob? What is this dealing with? How are we to understand this? Well, this is covenant promise. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. Now, I bet everybody here to the person has hated somebody at one time or another. I bet you have. You may sit there and say, not me. I don't believe it. (laughs) It's just a part of who we are. We have that ability to hate, and at times we have hated. But when it says here in the Bible, Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated, we should not impose our own emotions of hatred upon God. Because our hatred, for the most case, in most cases, and see, in all cases, is wrong unless we're hating sin. It's good to hate sin. It's good to hate evil and to hate wickedness. Because the things you hate, you normally don't associate or get involved with them. I hate, uh, what little cabbage looking thing, what's it called? Brussels sprouts. I hate Brussels sprouts. Uh, I can't stand to smell them cooking. I want nothing to do with them. I think they're kind of neat looking little cabbages. But uh, I want nothing to do with them. And I don't know why or how people can eat the nasty little things. But be that as it may, uh, when we read about God hating Esau, it's not what it means at all, the way that we hate something or hate someone that we uh, are so disgusted by it. Well, the way it is, and you remember in what it said that the older will serve the younger. Uh, and if you looked at these two brothers, um, Jacob was a scoundrel. If you remember your biblical history, uh, Jacob uh, cheated his brother. Jacob uh, stole his brother's birthright. Uh, Jacob was uh, a mama's boy. Esau was a hunter. Esau was a man's man. And yet, you remember in the book of Hebrews where it says that uh, he sought repentance with tears and was denied that repentance. Why? Because when Esau denied his birthright, he denied the covenant God. That's why. He sold it all away for a bowl of stew of some kind because he was hungry. Paul says their God is their belly. That's a case of that being uh, seen in the life of this man, Esau. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I have hated And it is that God passed over the blessings that would have been Esau's by birthright and gave them to his brother. You remember when um, Jacob got married, he married Leah and Rachel. And you remember what his father-in-law did to him on the night of his honeymoon. He sent Leah in to the tent. And the next morning when Jacob woke up, he realized he had been tricked. The trickster was tricked. And uh, he did not intend to marry Leah. It says she was not a fair-eyes 
I don't know exactly what that means, except she wasn't as attractive as her sister. Uh, I know it means that, that uh, Rachel was a much more attractive woman uh, than her sister was. But we don't understand that as uh, he hated her. Uh, He didn't favor her. Well, here, God did not favor Esau. He passed over Esau and gave the blessings of the covenant to his brother Jacob. And again, if you looked at these individuals, you would say that the older brother was by far the righteous man, by far the just man, by far the good man. And yet it would not please God. And so he appeals here to that, as Charles read this evening, and what that indicates to the people of God is they are the favored people, the people of promise. Have I not shown you my love? How have you shown your love to us? Well, Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. You're a part of the descendants of Jacob. You're a part of the church. And so these were the people of God of old. They were the people of promise. And God, in his grace and kindness, reminds them of that love that he placed upon them, not because they were a good people, not because they were a righteous people, not because they deserved it by any stretch of the imagination, but because God simply chose to love them. And let this ring in your ears and in your heart. Why is it that you're a Christian today? It's not because you are righteous. It's not because you are particularly Christ-like at all. It is only and because God chose to place His mercy and His grace upon you. And so He chose to love you in spite of what you deserve. There's that great grace that we read about in the scriptures applied on a personal level. So God's love for his people is unconditional as demonstrated here in this example as Malachi appears to Esau and to Jacob, the brother. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. And I love when Charles read from the text in Romans, uh, who can resist his will, then that great quote from the scriptures, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Does not the potter have right over the clay? So the second thing is God's love for his people is simply undeniable. It is demonstrated here with the people of old. It is demonstrated very clearly to us in the New Testament because of God's love displayed for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. That's exactly what Jesus did to us. But it all goes back to the promise that God made in the Old Testament to Abraham. The fulfillment of that promise being seen again and again as God had his own covenant people, particular people, and was committed to them. And then finally, that love for us seen in the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider God's love, and we think about God's love, we must admit it is unbelievable. Listen to what is written by Paul in the book of Ephesians, the third chapter. This is the second prayer that that the apostle 
praise or rights in the book of Ephesians. Uh, you have likely heard it before. I preached one time on it at Presbytery one time. The Lord gave me great freedom and grace as I preached this text from Ephesians 3. It's so, so rich and moving. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be strengthened to comprehend. Now listen to this. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. I would encourage you, congregation, that in the times of difficulty in your life, in the times of questioning God's providence, don't ever question God's love and the depth of God's love. We can't begin to comprehend the, the, uh, the depth of God's love for us. And so it is unbelievable, is it not? God's love for us is unbelievable in its existence. Do you believe that? You should believe that. What a strange and marvelous thing that the God who is so holy and that the angels declare his holiness and the angels who have no sin shield themselves from that holiness. What a marvelous thing that those of us who rightly stood condemned by God as guilty before him and condemned before him for our own sin should find ourselves as recipients of God's love. It's unbelievable. And let the love of God take you to heaven. Always remember that the ultimate expression of God's love for us, which displayed on the cross of Calvary, is assured our place in glory. Heaven's our home. This is not our home. And yet we strive and strive and strive as if this is all there is. And the spiritual things are put on the back burner. And the spiritual things are not really sought after like the things that are passing away. And it's illogical. It's simply illogical. And yet we are deceived so many times of the grandeur of the things that the world has to offer. And yet those things do not in any way open up the gates of glory for us. But Christ and Christ alone and God's love for us. It is unbelievable uh, the extent of that love and includes all kinds of people. Do You know, and I'm sure you do know this, when you think of someone who is the the worst criminal in history, who might come to mind? And you think of someone uh, in history that is just absolutely reprehensible person, who might come to mind? Adolf Hitler. Yeah. You know, there were actually about 12 million people killed under Hitler's rule, not just 6 million Jews, but about 12 million people were slaughtered under Hitler. Even more under Stalin. I think about 56 million people were slaughtered under Stalin. We don't hear about that too much for some odd reason. So you think about the most uh, reprehensible fellow was the son of Sam, uh, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer. He's a pretty bad guy. Or 
Saddam Hussein, you could, the list could go on and on and on of the expressions of depravity from leaders and from individuals throughout history. And yet, the grace of God and the power of the cross is sufficient that even Adolf Hitler could have been saved had he repented. Had he repented. The man who was guilty of genocide, the man who was guilty of the death and the blood of so many people's lives being on his hand, and I can't and I'm not going to tell you if you read the history of Germany, some of the things the soldiers did to people. And I believe that as the leader goes, so often goes its nation. A ungodly, wicked man, had he come to repentance, he would have been saved. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary where he took our guilt and condemnation upon himself no matter how horrendous the guilt and the deed done was. He paid for it on the cross of Calvary. And then finally, we can talk about um, unbelievable God's love is and its duration. When does God stop loving you? When does God stop loving you? He doesn't. He never does. You know, um, if you're married, there'll be times you don't feel like you love your spouse. You don't feel like it when you're mad. Usually, you don't feel like it when you get angry. When you explode at your children at that time, you don't think about how you love them. You think about how angry you are. God's never that way. Ever. His love for us is as consistent and strong and deep as it is on the days we are in worship singing praises to him as on the days when we are involved in lawlessness. He's not pleased with us when we own those days. But he doesn't love us any less. Not one iota. So they say to God, uh, he says, uh, I have loved you. Well, how have you loved us? And the ultimate answer to that is, according to the way Malachi puts it in here, is Christ. That's the ultimate answer. The ultimate expression of God's love for us is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes again to that covenant illustration. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. You are sons of Jacob. I have loved you, he says, and I have demonstrated my love for you. And that love is constant. And the response that we should have for this is loving God back. How do we show our love to God? Obedience in all things. Not some things, but in all things. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus said that, John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so our obedience then to God is not out of fear, although you should be afraid to bring his wrath down upon you. But our obedience to God is love. 
And if we think about how he loves us, as they're called to do here in the book of Malachi, that should spur us on to respond in kind. Someone one time said to me that if a husband is loving his wife as he should, how is he supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church and was willing to die for her? So that a husband's ultimate expression of love to his wife is willing to die for. That's what the scriptures teach. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is no room for selfishness on the part of the husband ever. Ever. Unless he wishes to be involved in sin. God has loved us. We are to love him. And a husband that loves his wife as God calls, she will follow him anywhere. Anywhere. If she knows she's being loved like that. Well, how can we help but respond to following Christ anywhere? Because of how deeply he loves us. Let's pray.